prayer, pray for our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise you that we can be together. Lord, we know that and we understand Lord, that the preaching of the word is central to what we do in the service. Lord, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready to receive. That the singing of the Word of God this morning, the singing would have prepared us so that we're ready to receive your Word. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate. Lord, I thank you that we can trust in your promises. Your promise, especially this morning, that your Word will not return void. We thank you this morning again in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, I don't think Phil mentioned it, but if you're visiting today, we'd love to have you fill out a visitor card so we can get your information. Uh, they're over on the counter over there. We also have, we don't pass out the offering plate here. Uh, we actually choose to do so through uh, the giving box, you see the, the wood box over there. That giving box uh, is for those who are committed to Grace Bible Church to worship our Lord through the giving. And so we uh, would like for you to, if, you, if you're here and you're visiting us, we just want you to be here and enjoy your time with us. And if you have any questions, please let me know or let Phil know, and we will try to get you the answers that you need. Let's get started this morning. Uh, a godly pastor in the, the 17th century by the name of Thomas Doolittle was in the habit of catechizing the members of his congregation every Lord's Day. He was especially fond of catechizing the young folks, the youth. One Sunday morning, he received a recited answer from one of the youths in the exact words of the catechism. Uh, the, the, the question was, what is effectual calling? As he further explained the answer, he said that the question should be answered by changing the words to us, our, into, or the words us and our into me and mine. After the group heard this, his proposal, a grave and long silence followed. Many in, att in attendance felt the, the vast importance of what Doolittle had to say but none had the courage to answer. Doolittle waited, and finally a young man rose up, very young man. And the scene was truly moving to all those in attendance. His proposal had brought a heightened level of, of, of solemnness. Therefore, everyone was on the edge of their seat when this young man rose to speak. And his standing up, he exhibited every mark of a broken and contrite heart. You could see it written all over his face. And by divine grace, he was enabled to say the following. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing me of my sin and misery, enlightening my mind in the knowledge of Christ and renewing my will. He doth persuade and enable me to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to me, in the gospel. The congregation, based on because of his brokenness, was bathed in tears. 
watching this young man turn to Christ, literally turn to Christ before their very eyes. He had been convicted of his sinfulness by being catechized as they looked upon or looked on. Doolittle said of this incredible event, he said this, From being an ignorant and wicked youth, he became a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to God's glory. Now, this is an amazing story of transformation by God's Spirit. He convinced him, the, the Spirit of God convinced him of his sin and misery. He enlightened his mind in the knowledge of Christ, and he renewed him or renewed his will, persuading him to embrace Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Steve Lawson states, he says this, Unless the Holy Ghost blesses the word, who we, preach the, uh, we who preach the gospel are of, are of all men most miserable, for we have attempted a task that is impossible. Let me stop right there. Basically what he's saying is, is unless the Holy Spirit blesses what we're doing, we can preach the gospel all we want, but it won't work. It won't work. We've attempted a task that's impossible. We, he goes on to say, we have entered on a sphere where nothing but the supernatural will ever avail. If the Holy Spirit does not renew the hearts of our hearers, we cannot do it. Let me stop there and say, I can preach all I want. I can preach till I have no voice. But if the Holy Spirit does not uh, quicken the heart, then it doesn't do any good. He goes on to say, if the Holy Ghost does not regenerate them, we cannot. If he does not send the truth home into their souls, we might as well speak into the ear of a corpse. End quote. Clearly, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to convince men and women of their sin. He enlightens the mind and he changes the will. He shows us the truth and changes us so that we can understand it. The Holy Spirit persuades us to embrace Jesus Christ when we would never, never do so on our own. As J.I. Packer states, were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel. There would be no faith, no church, no Christianity in the world at all, end quote. I don't believe J.I. Packer is overstating the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Beloved, but I want you to know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit does not end at our salvation. Today we're going to learn that not only does the, is the Holy Spirit instrumental in saving you as a believer, He is instrumental in securing you in Jesus Christ. Now before we jump into our study, we are returning to Ephesians chapter 1, our study in Ephesians. I want to read the verses that we're studying this morning. Actually what I would like to do is read all the way from verses 1 through 14. We we started this study several uh, several months ago, and as Phil mentioned earlier, we took a break for the summer, and now we're returning back to our study in Ephesians. So if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Paul the Apostle writes the following, starting in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ 
just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Now these are the verses that we're specifically going to look at this morning. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, if that sounds like a mouthful, it is. That is one long sentence in the Greek text. Paul literally starts at the beginning, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't place a period till, till, uh, from verse 3, that is, all the way to verse 14. Now, today... As I said, we're going to learn more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But before we do that, I want to, before we jump into verses 13 and 14, I want to take some time to remind you where we are in our study. The Apostle Paul, as we've said, wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul was the most unlikely of apostles. As you may recall, he was dramatically converted by our Lord on the road to Damascus. Up to that point, he was actually a persecutor of Christians. He tormented them for their faith. Saul, as he was also known, was greatly feared among the Christian churches, among the followers of Christ. In his own words, Paul says this, He, he was circumcised, this is Philippians 3, 5, 5, He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Of his own accord, Paul would have never have become a follower of Christ, which makes him a, a great testimony for our Lord. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest testimonies of the truthfulness of the power of the gospel for God to change a man like Paul, to, who was a persecutor, who was one who was trying to tear down the church to make him one who God used to build the church. This was Paul's point in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And he says this in verse 16, Yet for this reason, now what reason, Paul? That I'm the foremost of all sinners, right? Yet for this reason, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. What are you saying, Paul? What he's saying is, is that I was one who was tearing down the church, I was one who was killing Christians, and yet God saved me in His mercy. And He can save you too 
But not only that, but we can trust Paul, right? Why can we trust Paul? A man who was in that position, a man who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man who was, uh, as to the law of Pharisee, gave up everything in order to be used to build the church. Beloved, you can believe Paul's testimony because he had nothing to gain in this world by preaching the gospel, and he had everything to lose, yet he knew that he had everything to gain by doing so. He says this, in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Beloved, Paul didn't choose to be an apostle of Christ. At his conversion, he didn't walk the aisle and accept Christ. He was chosen before the foundation of the world he was being absolutely truthful in Ephesians 1.4 when he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Paul knew that he didn't deserve God's grace and mercy. Yet he could say in Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Paul was speaking in absolute from his, from his experience based on what he had done in his life. Beloved, have you been shown mercy in Christ Jesus? Have you been saved by His grace? Or are you still relying on your own righteousness to make you right before God? Are you still trying to gain favor with God? Now, as we go move forward, there's some controversy among scholars as to whether Paul even wrote this letter to Ephesus. Now, I believe that Ephesians was written <coughs> by Paul, and I believe that Ephesians was written, I'm, I'm convinced that it, Ephesians was written to Ephesus, <coughs> because Paul is very strategic in his writing. There are some who believe the letter is too general in nature to have been written to a specific congregation. Now, the letter doesn't contain many personal greetings, and as, as would be expected, to a place where, where, where it might be expected. He didn't, the letter didn't have many personal greetings, as might have been expected, to a place where Paul had spent so much time. I'll get it out in a minute. <laughs> I believe that, that this reasoning, though, forms a significant proof why he was writing to a specific place, <clears throat> to that specific place. He had spent so much time there that he was able to dispense of the niceties of a letter that he had written to a group that, that he would have written to a group that didn't know him well. For example, in Paul's letter to the saints in Rome, he spent an, an entire chapter giving greetings. Now, why would he do that to, the, to a church that he had never been to? He wrote the letter of Romans to a church he'd never been to, yet he spent time uh, giving them greetings. Well, Again, Paul is very strategic. Thank you, Frank. Paul is very strategic. You see, Paul wrote the letter to, to the Romans wanting their help, uh, wanting him to, them, them to help him on his way to Spain. You see, he needed their help. He wanted them to be excited about the ministry, and he wanted his, their help on the way to continue to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So in both cases, the writing style and content are related to his purpose for writing the letter. In Ephesians, 
Paul's purpose is to teach the church at Ephesus right doctrine concerning the church. He wanted them to, he wanted to show them God's plan of redemption for the whole world through the church. Now Paul writes Ephesus to, to Ephesus, but he has a larger audience in mind. Again, he's very strategic. He, he understands that, that Ephesus lies in a strategic location. You see, it's the connecting point to all the churches in the east and the west. Just imagine the church at Ephesus being a hub of, of a wheel. It is located as the, as the connecting point to the rest of the churches. Everything flowed through and from Ephesus. As such, Ephesus connected the church to churches as a hub. Now, what we have to understand is then that the letter of Ephesians is considered to be the, the pinnacle of New, New Testament theology. It's the, it's the zenith of Paul's writing. You see, if all doctrine flowed through Ephesus and from Ephesus, then where else would Paul choose to write his most important work? Especially on the nature and purpose of the church. Again, he chose Ephesus because the future of the local churches was directly tied to the health of the church at Ephesus. So I believe that's why this, this letter has a general feel to it, because it was intended to be spread throughout the churches. It didn't have that same personal feel, but it was meant for Ephesus because Paul wanted Ephesus to understand the right, the right doctrine or, or, or good doctrine of the church, or the right doctrine of the church. Now, I w- should remind you, if you've been here before with us, that of how Paul structured the first few verses of Ephesians. If you start looking at verse 1, we saw that Paul, or that God, that is, always has chosen his pioneer. Paul, in the first verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As I said earlier, Paul, clearly Paul did not choose to be an apostle. God chose him. God chose him for the specific purpose of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, you and I wouldn't be sitting here other than the, the ministry of Paul. Later in verse 1, we saw that, that Paul always also chooses his, he, he chooses his, his pioneer, his, peop, his, uh, his one to take his, one to take the gospel, that is Paul, but he also chose his people. After identifying himself, he identifies his office, or his audience, that is, as the faithful saints who are in Ephesus. In other words, he wanted to play up their faithfulness because of their importance to the spread of the gospel. He says, he says to them, the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. God chose the people at Ephesus for the purpose of being the, the hub by which the doctrine, the doctrine would flow from the other church, or to the other churches. not only in the region of Asia Minor, but to the churches in the east and the west. Beloved, God always chooses His people for His own purpose and His plan. He always chooses people for His own specific reasons. Even this church here, Grace Bible Church, has been chosen for God's purpose to be a a light for the gospel here in Gainesville and beyond. Here at Grace Bible Church, we have the unique opportunity to preach the gospel to the nations as they come to this city. In verse 3, Paul gives his proposition statement for the rest of the section from verses 4 through 14. He, he uses, we have even used that as Paul's words 
to form our proposition for this series of sermons on the section. In, verses, in verse 3, Paul wants his readers to comprehend, or actually in verses 3 through, through 14, he wants the, his readers to comprehend the full breadth and depth of the, of the threefold blessing of believers through the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, Paul wants them to understand, he wants the believers at Ephesus to understand the immense blessing that God has bestowed upon all the saints. More specifically, we have been blessed by the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we found that the Father has blessed us, blessed you by choosing you. You see, in verse 4, he begins his assault on any idea of self-will. Our salvation, then, is not primarily about us, but it's about what God is doing in this world. Not only did God sovereignly choose Paul as his apostle, but he chose you and me as well. And he did this from the foundation of the world. You might be saying, do you mean... Do you mean to say that we didn't choose God, but He chose us? We could do before we could do anything one way or the other. Yeah, that's the point. Before you and I could have done anything good or bad, He chose to save us for His purposes and for His plan, for His glory. He received counsel from no one but Himself, and in doing so you have been truly saved by grace, not as a result of works. See, God is truly rich in mercy, and that's His whole point in chapter 2. We'll see that later. His sovereign choice, His sovereign rescue of those who did not deserve His mercy brings Him glory. Not only did God the Father bless you by choosing you, He blessed you by cleansing you. Notice in verse 4, He says, He chose us that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He made us a people for His own possession. He sanctified us. He made us holy. He set us apart from the world. Many, many people reduce Christianity to a bunch of rules. Do this, don't do that. But it's not about following rules. Our righteous works don't save us, and our righteous works alone don't sanctify us. It is God who ultimately cleanses us. We obey Him out of our love for Christ who has saved us. We submit to Him because of our desire to please Him. We follow Him because we, He has given us a longing to be with Him. So God saved us. He saved us. He, he chose us from the foundation of the world. And then He cleanses us. And He also has adopted us as sons. Look at verses 5 and 6. God has adopted us as sons. In Christ, He has bestowed upon you every right given to the firstborn son. Beloved, you as a believer are in Christ. Therefore, you have been given every right as, a, as an adopted son. As Paul writes, he says that he, he has freely bestowed His grace upon you in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? That is Christ Jesus. That is in Christ. He has freely bestowed His grace upon you because you are in Christ. You have every right of a firstborn son because you are in Christ. According to verses 7-12, through 12, He's also blessed you by redeeming you. 
In other words, He has bought you back from the slave market of sin. Prior to Christ saving you, you were not a son. You were a slave to sin. But Christ redeemed you through His incarnation, His sinless life that He lived, the the bloody death that He died, His glorious victory over sin and death when He was raised from the dead. These things you couldn't have done on your own. You couldn't have done these things. There's no way that you could have lived a sinless life. He he died a bloody death in order to take upon Himself your sin. And He was victorious over sin and death as He was raised from the grave. Not only did He purchase you, He purchased the church. As a matter of fact, salvation then is primarily, not primarily about what He is doing for you as an individual, but about what He is doing in the world through His people, the church, whom He has redeemed and bought, paid for by His own blood. But you get to be a part of that. He has bought you back from the, the slave market of sin. He has set you free in Him. He's done so by raining His grace upon you and revealing His mysteries to you. You didn't deserve salvation, beloved. If you're sitting here today and you are saved and you you find yourself in Christ, you didn't deserve that. Matter of fact, you deserve death and condemnation. Yet He has freely bestowed His grace upon you. That's what makes grace, grace. That's what makes grace, grace, is that it's, it's, and that's what makes mercy, mercy. When he, when he does something that you do not deserve, you are completely undeserving. But not only did He rain His grace upon you, but He revealed the mysteries of His will, will to you in His Word. He has revealed and continues to reveal the mystery of His will. You've been given access into the counsel of His will. You've been given insight into God's plan for this world. Can you imagine for a moment, can you imagine the President of the United States calling you up and saying, hey, can you fly to D.C. and join us in the Situation Room? I want to share our country's secrets with you. I want to give you everything. I want to show you everything about what we're doing and what we're planning to do. It's far-fetched, right? But God has allowed you to enter His throne room to hear and understand His plan formulated from the foundation of the world. That's what we see here in Ephesians 1, 3-14. We see God's plan for uh, His church, for His people, which He formulated from the foundation of the world. And according to verses 9 and 10, He has revealed the mysteries of His will, showing us how He will sum up all things in Christ. And by the way, Christ is the point of all these things. Make no mistake that while we see Paul display the Trinity in all its glory, Jesus Christ is at the center of His praise because He is at the center of all redemptive history. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ is the point of all redemptive history because He is the point of everything. Look at verses 11 and 12. In these verses, we find that Jesus Christ the Son has blessed us by readying His inheritance. You know who His inheritance is? It's the church. 
It's his people, a people for his own possession. Now, you might look at your Bible, the NAS, the ESV, the New King James Version. They have all translated this as believers receiving an inheritance, but I don't think that is the best translation. I believe that the New English translation gets this correct. It says that in Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. We are Christ's inheritance. He came and He lived the life that He lived. He went to the cross. He died for our sins so that He might have a people for His own possession. We are His inheritance. Beloved, that's why you find yourself in Him. You are in Christ. And as such, you have been blessed by Him. Said another way, whatever happens to Christ happens to you. You're now not identified if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now identified by your relationship with Him. You are not identified by, your, by who you are formally, but by your, completely by your relationship with Him. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? and that you are not your own. You're no longer, you're no longer your own. Verse, verse 20, he says this, For you have been bought with a price. You have been redeemed. You have been, you have been bought from the slave market of sin. Bought with the price of the blood of Christ. Therefore, he argues, glorify God in your body. You are God's people. You are Christ's inheritance, His own possession. And you have been sealed in Him and are secure in Him. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that all who He has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. Beloved, this is the truth. If you find yourself in Christ today, if you find yourself uh, as a believer in Christ today, you are guaranteed that He will raise you up on the last day. But how can we know? How can we know? Can we stumble and fall before we reach the finish line? Let's cut to the chase. Can we lose our salvation? At the beginning of the sermon, I told you the story of a young man who dramatically turned to Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was dramatically saved. But how can we be assured that he will remain in Christ? What if he falls away? Beloved, our security, not only is our salvation a ministry of the Holy Spirit, our security is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to verses 13 and 14. You see, God the Holy Spirit, we've seen that God, how the God the Father has blessed us. We've seen how God the Son has blessed us, and now we're going to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has blessed you by being First, your guarantee of salvation, or the guarantee of your salvation. 
and second, the guarantor of your redemption. Let's look at the first point. So up until that point, it's all been reviewed. Let's look at the first point. God the Holy Spirit has blessed you by being the guarantee of your salvation. Verse 13. Look at the text. In Him, that would be in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul, Paul says, in Him you also. Here we see that Paul continues with a, a laser focus on the person of Christ. The same focus he's had throughout the text. But I want to show you that there's something even more subtle going on in this phrase. <clears throat> Notice that Paul says, you also. You see, there's a subtle shift here. A subtle shift in pronouns. He goes from we or us to you, which dramatically, it dramatically slows down the text. Said another way, Paul has been at 10,000 feet. He's been talking about the, the glorious nature of the Father and the Son. He has revealed the Father's magnificent plan of redemption in the Son. He has shown that the Son is worthy of all praise for what He's accomplished in the church how He's redeemed the church, how the, the curse has been reversed, how God has redeemed, a Christ that is, has redeemed His people. And He has done all these things to the praise of His glory. He's, he's soaring above the heavens with this. In other words, He has done all these things that we would praise Him for His greatness and His majesty. We would praise Him for His loving kindness and His truth. But now Paul takes a moment to show you specifically what this means in your life. In effect, Paul is like the mad professor describing a fantastic world beyond our imagination. He has a wild look in his eyes as he proclaims the majesty of the Father and the Son. And then he stops and he says, and you, and you. This is, how it, this is the effect that it has on you. You've heard, you've heard it said that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, according to, to Ephesians 1, I think you could say it better this way. The Father loves His Son, and He has a wonderful plan for Him. And if you are in Him, you get to take part in this wonderful plan. But you may protest. You may protest. What about me? What about me? You may even say, if this is all true, why isn't my life better now? You know, why can't I have my best life now? I thought the Christian life was going to be easy. Why doesn't, why doesn't God redeem this world now? You know, we're, we serve the God of the universe. I'm serving the God of the universe. Why am I still suffering? Why am I still enduring persecution? Why are other Christians enduring suffering and persecution? How do I know that God will keep me till the end? And Paul answers these questions right here in these verses. Right here in these verses. He says, he says, and you, and you, and him. 
you also, after listening to the message of truth, the, the gospel of your salvation. What is this message of truth? It's what Paul has been teaching in these first few verses. He, he defines it as the, it is the gospel of your salvation, the message which has saved you, the message which says that, that the Father has chose you from the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. That Christ has redeemed us, that has bought us back, has paid for our sins at the cross. It's the message that of Christ's sinless life and sin-atoning death on the cross and His resurrection in power. Paul says that you are saved by hearing this message of truth. In Romans 10... He writes this, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in them whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Preacher to do what? To preach the good news. The good news of Christ. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Beloved, you hear the message of the gospel. You heard the message of the gospel and you turned to Christ and now you believe. That's what Paul is saying here. Having also believed. In Galatians 4, Paul reminded the Galatians that he, when he preached the gospel, the good news of Christ, they received him as Christ Jesus himself. In other words, they responded and were saved by the hearing of the gospel. Not only did they hear it with their ears, but they believed it with their heart. They believed it because it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit to be true. Think back to the first time you... Have you when you heard the, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how did you respond? Maybe you rejected it. But if you are a believer, you heard the message and you believed it and you were saved by that message. By the way, the, the word gospel can be tra- is, is translated gospel, could be used as the message of a military victory. When we share the message of the gospel, we're sharing the good news that Christ Jesus has defeated the enemy. He has crushed the head of the serpent. He has begun to establish His kingdom. His kingdom is here today, yet not fully established. Already, but not yet. You are part of the kingdom, yet you still live in this wicked world. You have been redeemed, yet you still battle the flesh. Paul goes on to say, which, let me just back up and say, you're, it's, it's the already but not yet. The, the, you, you've been redeemed, yet you still battle the flesh, which, which makes us wonder, makes us question, is this really true? Is it really real? But Paul goes on to say, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word sealed marks ownership. It marks the... It, it, talks about the security of the contents. In other words, Christ's seal of ownership has been placed on the believer. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have had the the seal of His ownership placed on you. And no one other than the owner can break that seal. It's the official mark of identification placed on a document that has been sent under the authority of the sovereign who owns that seal. 
And when people see, see that seal, they recognize the significance of that ownership. The seal signifies ownership and authority of the, of the sovereign one and the authenticity and the security of the contents. Look, when you are saved, He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit and no one can touch you. No one can change that. The same word is used in Revelation 5. John writes in 5.1, I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, in the right hand, that is, of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to him, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. It is that one, beloved, who has sealed you with the Holy Spirit and sealed in Christ. Back in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the order of this phrase in the Greek is important for us to understand. He literally says you were sealed in the Spirit of promise, the Holy One. The Spirit here, clearly, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And this sealing that he's talking about is internal, it's supernatural. You've been sealed from the inside out, not from the outside in. This statement further defines, or is further defined as as fulfilling and guaranteeing all the promises of Scripture, especially those promises which look forward to the salvation of God's people. In Deuteronomy 28, as the people stood just outside the promised land, Moses called for them to obey the law of God. And he pronounced blessings that they obeyed and curses that they didn't. And ultimately, we know from history they didn't obey because true obedience comes from where? The heart. That was the point in Matthew 5-7 through in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, when he said looking on a woman with lust with her in your heart is as the same as adultery. And being angry with your brother is the same as murder. Murdering him in your heart. So obedience comes from the heart. They were not able to obey because they needed a new heart. As such, the law is a tutor which demonstrates to us our need for a new heart. Listen to God's words in Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Does that that sound familiar to what Paul is saying here? It is God who who has chosen us. He has made us holy and blameless before Him. And He has placed His Spirit within us, and He has sealed us with with, uh, His Spirit. 
and He's taken the heart of stone from us and given us a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. You see, they needed a change of heart. They needed a circumcised heart. They needed a new spirit within them that would cause them to walk in God's statutes and observe His ordinances. And I believe this is what David longs for in Psalm 51. Listen to verse 2. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. See, David was longing for the day when when God would send His Holy Spirit to dwell within man and give him a new heart. You see, God promised these things in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit has been promised to us to make that change in us. The Holy Spirit has been promised to reverse the fall. On the one hand, the, the serpent promised Adam and Eve that eating the fruit would make them like God. They ate the fruit and became everything unlike God. And man has been unlike God ever since. Though he was made in the image of God, man became opposite of God. But when the Holy Spirit, beloved, dwells in you, He truly makes you more like God. He reverses the curse. You become holy. You are transformed and you are placed in Christ. And amazingly, you have been owned to the extent that there is no difference between you and Christ. Let me say it this way. To ever disown you, God would have to hate His own own beloved Son because you are in Christ. To ever disown you, God would have to hate His own beloved Son. You see, Ephesians 1.13 shows you how you've been incorporated in God's grand plan. The Holy Spirit absolutely transforms your soul and demonstrates your new identity in Christ. Because of this truth, the the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Brother, this is the power of God. He can choose us from the foundation of the world, and He can make good on His promise to save us. He can adopt us as sons. He can redeem us, buying buying us back from the slave market of sin. He can forgive us by His grace, and He can indwell us and make us like Himself. John Owen sums up these things like this. Every time we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, We mean we believe there is a living God able and willing to enter human personality and change it. But not only does He change change us, He forms an unbreakable bond. An unbreakable bond with us that can never be broken by anyone at all. As such, you are secure in Christ. He has given given you eternal life and you shall never perish. 
No one can snatch you out of His hand. John Calvin says it this way, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ efficaciously, effectively, that is, unites us to Himself. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your salvation, and He is also the guarantor, point number two, the guarantor of your redemption. This goes quickly. Look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the down payment of, of what we are to receive. Paul said in verse 3 that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But this has not been brought to full fruition. You see, the Holy Spirit is the, the promise of our full inheritance. This word could be used of an engagement ring, which represents our promise to marry. This is the, the engagement ring, the promise of, of full inheritance. Look at the text. With the, with the view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. The beginning, that is, then, the of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart is the guarantee that you will be redeemed. In other words, the final redemption will come. You will be glorified. You are part of God's plan. You have been given a new identity. You see, the Holy Spirit not only guarantees your salvation, but He is the guarantor of your redemption. He is the engagement ring which signifies God's promise to love you and to keep you no matter what befalls you in your life. He is also the promise that you will be fully redeemed and will live forever with God in His kingdom. That's why Paul can write these words in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Those may be familiar words to you. But he goes on in verse 29. He says this. See if you think it matches Ephesians 1. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Beloved, God has come in the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart as a, the down payment for all that is to come. And Paul in Romans 8 could write with absolute conviction of what was going to come. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Notice it's past tense, as if it's already happened. And these whom He justified, He also glorified, as if it's already happened. Yet Paul is living flesh and blood right then, suffering for the sake of Christ. And he could say that those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Beloved, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
is to guarantee, to be a down payment and to, be, to guarantee your salvation and be a guarantor of your, the guarantor of your redemption. And this, according to Paul, is all to the praise of His glory. It's all to the praise of His glory. He's given as a pledge, as a promise of our full inheritance with a, with a view toward the redemption of God's possession. What is God's possession? The church, us. We are God's possession, and this is all to, his, to the praise of His glory. We will praise Him for what He has done. Beloved, we will praise Him forever for what He has done. I believe Adrian Rogers quite simply sums up this passage with the following words. It says this, Christianity is a love relationship between a child of, of God and His Maker through the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Beloved, if you're here today and you know, you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would see the power of what Christ has done. The power of what He has done in redeeming this world, but also the power of what He has done in making sure that you persevere to the end. That He who chose you from the foundation of the world has sent His Son and He has guaranteed that all of these things will come to fruition to the praise of His glory. And we can be absolutely certain of it. We can be absolutely certain of it. If you're sitting here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, you can be assured of nothing but wrath. You can be assured of nothing but a coming wrath upon you if you do not repent. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and He died for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, went to the cross so that He might bear our sins so that we would not have to bear the Father's wrath. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's a, it's, it's, there's simplicity there. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. If you are relying right now on your own righteousness, it is your righteousness that you will stand before the Father with. Beloved, trust in Christ the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, who came to redeem us from the, the, the sin market, who came to free us from our sins so that we might be slaves of Him. Oh, but it's so different. It's so different. If you don't know Him today, call out to Him. Turn to Him. Trust Christ and Christ alone. Make Him your all in all. Make Him everything. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You this morning.
Lord, my heart is heavy with knowing that there are those here today who haven't bowed their knee to you. Knowing that there are those today who even mock this message. That there's a sovereign God. A God on His throne. A God who will judge sin. That we are sinful. And that His wrath, Your wrath, abides on those who have not turned to Christ. Christ is glorious. Christ has redeemed His people. My Lord, I, my heart is heavy that there would be those who have not made Christ their all in all, that are still trusting in their own righteousness, who will stand before You, Lord, and say, have I been good enough? when all it takes is to trust in the righteousness of Christ and the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Simple message. Father, you are waiting to save by your grace. You, being rich in mercy, are waiting to show your mercy on those who don't know you. Lord, I pray for those who do this morning who do know you. I pray that they would know and understand the glorious nature of, the, of what you have done. Lord, you have given us insight in your word into the counsel of your will before the foundation of the world. You brought us into the situation room, if you will. And you've revealed your plan of redemption through your church. Lord, I pray that we would take this message, the message of the truth, the gospel of our salvation, and that we would spread it far and wide, that you, have been, you are victorious over sin and death. You stand in victory, my Lord. I pray. Lord, thanking you that those whom those whom you justify, Lord, you also sanctify, making them holy and blameless before you. Those whom you have justified, you also glorify. Lord, that promise, Lord, that you we will stand with you in the kingdom of heaven. May we go forth from this place victorious, taking that message of victory to those who, who don't know you. In Christ's name.